All right, well, if you guys have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, more specifically. That is like a lot. Moses. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Take off your sandals. Sorry. That was the last one. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 4, and we'll be going through till verse 10, Lord willing, this evening. And so uh, as you're turning there, if you haven't already, let's go ahead and go before the Lord and ask him to bless our time this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege that you provided for us to have nights like this, the freedom that you've granted to us in this nation so far, at least, that we can meet uninhibited and unhindered and be able to celebrate the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and be able to celebrate the salvation that we have in mutual fellowship and enjoyment of each other as we ultimately enjoy the salvation that you have purchased for us in your son, Jesus. We thank you oh so much for that. Father, we pray that you'd be glorified as we witness the theology behind what it what happened in moving us out of spiritual deadness and into spiritual life and all the wonderfulness that this brings. So I pray, Lord, that you would impress it upon our hearts to be refreshed by the gospel and we would glorify you that much more. For it's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll see how quickly we can go through this. Our time is a little bit limited right now, but that's all right. We can see what we can accomplish. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It starts this way. It says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So if you guys remember from last week, there was some... Do you guys mind if I take these down? (laughs) Sorry. That was... It was a little little bit in the way. I'm going to hold this one. I'm kidding. But if you guys remember from last week, we had such a dark and gloomy time traversing our way through the first three verses and examining things that are indeed in and of themselves haunting. And in fact, that is the ultimate and true scariest thing that you could ever begin to witness is beginning to examine how the scriptures show you your former life. When you begin to look into how the scriptures paint such a vivid and graphic picture of what it was like to be before Christ, of what it was like to be spiritually dead And to be using the Greek word there, nekros, to be spiritual corpses. As you and your spirituality existed amongst the graves, existed amongst the tombs, and existed in such a horrendous and horrific reality to be spiritually dead, to be completely oblivious to the metaphysical realm of this life. 
to be completely unaware of all of the horrors that exist and to be completely unaware of all of the blessedness that exists in a right relationship with God and to be in a capacity whereby you are doing nothing but offending God and living within the pressures and the confines of his wrath and doing nothing that is spiritually pleasing unto him. This is the haunting reality. The past tense you is to be a spiritually dead you incapable of experiencing some of the most greatest treasures that you could possibly imagine that are found in the right relationship with Jesus Christ. It would be, if we put it this way, two specific issues. Being spiritually dead causes you to be in two problems. You have two specific problems as a spiritually dead person. You have nothing legally in and of yourself to be commended to God. There's nothing that you can say in a legal sense that you have done anything that is worthy of true justice and letting you off the hook and allowing you to be forgiven of breaking the law of God. There's nothing that you have that will allow you to stand in the courtroom of God and be able to have God say, well, sure, you're innocent. There's nothing in that in being a spiritually dead person. There's nothing to commend you to God legally. That's the first problem that you have. The second problem that you have as a spiritually dead person is that you have nothing in and of you to be moved to God personally. There's nothing that moves you to God. There's nothing that stirs up your spirit to be moved to God in any kind of a relationship capacity so that you would see God as a great and wonderful being and that you would find satisfaction within God and that you would have a great relationship with Him. There's nothing that will move you in that direction. It would be like this. If you got drunk and you went out and drove, and you ended up wrecking your car, and this is the lifestyle of a spiritually dead person, not just simply in drunkenness, but in the total chaos that would exist in being controlled by sin the way that alcohol can control you. And so imagine if you're behind the wheel, and you're in a drunken stupor to the point where you crash into a pole, and the police show up on the scene, and you open up the door, and you flop out of your car, and you reek of alcohol. There's nothing that you can say that is going to not be offensive to this police officer. There's nothing that you can say that can flatter this police officer. There's nothing that you can say to have any kind of a credible officer-citizen relationship that would exist there. And then the second problem is that it is completely obvious that you have broken the law and that justice needs to be served upon you. That's exactly what it's like in being a, in being a non-believer and in living in the spiritual deadness and the uncircumcision of your flesh and being in a position whereby you will not stand against the judgment of God, nor will you desire the things of the kingdom. And in fact, you would consider those to be foolish. You would consider things in Christianity to be stupid. That's the word that would be used there. In fact, the Greek word for foolishness that you would see in Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter two, where the natural man does not accept the things of the kingdom, for they are foolishness, is the Greek word moria, where you get the word moronic from. And so as a spiritually dead person, when you begin to talk about repentance, when you begin to talk about faith and salvation within God, when you begin to talk about judgment, when you begin to talk about consequences from sin, when you begin to talk about chaos as a result of sin, no matter what it is to a spiritually dead person, you're a moron. 
And so you see all of this. You get impacted by the reality of the first three verses. There is such horror to be existed in the concept of being spiritually dead. And not just simply that, but to be under the weight of the wrath of God. We were by children of wrath. By nature, we were children of wrath. And you get this sense of utter and total hopelessness. You get this sense of just total darkness. You get this sense of, of the idea that the sun's not even going to rise the next day. You get such an impacted perception of a terrible place to be by reading what we read last week. And then, of course, as light shining into the darkness and as something even more significant than Christmas morning something that is so much greater than any relationship that we can experience on this earth, something that is so much better than any of the sin that we've been participating in, something that is so much better than in any way, shape, or form the old life that we were living, we hear in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he lavished on us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. There is probably the, the most important and the loudest sounding conjunction at the beginning of verse 4. It's the conjunction heard round the world. When you begin to see the realities and the horrors of being spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, and there's no total way for anybody who is dead to ever ultimately enjoy or be satisfied with anything. We were reading through the book of Ezekiel on Wednesday nights, and we got to a point where it talked about that the Jerusalemites, the people in Jerusalem, the Israelites, that they were pursuing sin and they were pursuing idolatry and they could not find satisfaction in it everywhere that they turned and every which way that they would go. That's exactly how it is. Anybody who exists in a capacity whereby they are showing that sin is enjoyable and that sin is pleasurable and that it will provide for you. This is crazy. I think I have this on wrong, but we'll see how it goes. And you find out that it's, for them, so enjoyable and so wonderful and so, so spectacular. It is a complete and total deception. One thing I've always thought about as kind of a side note here is in dealing with the lives of unbelievers... And dealing with those who are spiritually dead, have you, ever, have you ever thought about what it would be like to go into a morgue and pull one of those caskets out of the wall and walk over to this decomposing individual and begin to talk to them? Begin to have a relationship with this dead body. And you could walk over to them and you could begin to say, hey, what do you think I should do about college? You walk over to them and say, hey, there's a person within the youth group and they're, they're really attractive and what do you think I should do about this? Or, and think of how twisted that this would be, that you would walk over to that corpse that's sitting within that casket and you would say, what's up, how's it going? What, what are you doing this weekend? You want to hang out? Maybe get some coffee? Right? Do you see the way they were looking at me? I'm telling you, this corpse over here has got the hots for me. How's it going? As, fu as funny as that is, especially picturing me doing that, 
But as funny as that is, think about how actually disgusting and morbid that that really is. Think about how much enjoyment that it is. Think about how pleasurable it is to be holding a conversation with this person who is ultimately dead. They don't understand a word that you're saying. They don't get what you're saying. They don't get the path that you're on. In fact, I had an unbelieving friend one time when um, I became a Christian. He actually said this to me. He said, when you, get, when you get done with that whole God thing, then come back and see me and we can actually hang out. When you get done with this whole play act, when you get done with this whole make-believe thing, these are the issues of the spiritually dead realm. This is, this is the reason why it's so weird and bizarre and awkward to be in a relationship, no matter what kind of relationship it is, with an unbeliever. Because they're spiritually dead. They don't know how to communicate or even understand or grasp the significance of sanctification, the significance of the kingdom, and the significance of the love of God. They can't love you the way that God does. And yet Christians have been given that very love of God to be able to give it to other people. These are what's dangerous. Of course, it's not the idea that you go into a position where you are completely avoiding and neglecting anybody who is an unbeliever. But it's the reality that you would impress it upon your life to begin to examine them as how they actually are. And the only way for them to begin to experience meaningful life is for you to preach the gospel to them or at least demonstrate the realities of salvation within your life to the degree where they say, what is so different about you? Why are you living this way and everybody else that I know amongst the graves and the tombs lives an entirely different manner of life. What is it about you? What is it about you that you can still experience joy in the midst of tragedy? How do you do that? How do you go into a youth group and you guys are all just beaming and vibrant with love for one another and you guys encourage and build each other up so much and whenever somebody is having a rough time, whenever somebody is having a bad day, they go to youth group. Things become that much better. Though the circumstances and the causes for the bad day may not change or may never change or even get worse, but you can come amongst believers and you get so revitalized and rejuvenated. You're running on empty on your battery and you come into the church, you come into the people of God whereby you can get recharged by all that spiritual vitality and energy and all that spiritual life can begin to permeate one another. Why is it that that happens? Or there's a conviction and maybe that that's not taking place. Maybe there's a lifestyle that exists whereby in order to connect with the dead people you try to act dead yourself it's like that movie warm bodies did you guys ever see that right and the chick is like coming out of the airplane with the dude and he's like act dead and like she's like ah like that you know that's what that's what a lot of people end up having to do in order to begin to connect with the spiritually dead world. There is no neutral ground. There is no commonality that is shared between us and the spiritually dead. And so in order for them to begin to understand and begin to realize the realities of Christianity, they must receive this new life. And in fact, maybe to hit that a little bit more home, 
is to again look upon the concepts that we examined last week and the reality that if I pursue that which I've been saved from, it's almost as if I'm trying to put my foot back into the grave and trying to relive deadness. What a grotesque image that that is. What a scary image that that ultimately is. But then, of course, there's the beauty and the realities of what we begin to see within these passages of Scripture here, within these verses, is the reality that God is the one who makes somebody alive. God is the one who changes somebody with nothing that they've done in order to achieve that or in order to receive that. But it is simply, as we can see here, the reality of God being rich in mercy and because of His great love It is because of who God is and what God has done that He steps down into creation and He begins to revitalize us. He begins to put His hands upon our spiritually dead chests and engage in CPR and even use spiritual defibrillators to bring us back to life. Analogously, of course. But you see here that in this smorgasbord of the awesomeness of God, it is displayed that He is rich in mercy. This is one thing to begin to understand. When you examine what it is that God has done for you to give you spiritual life, there is a maximizing view that will begin to take place within your life of how you look at God. He will become magnified. He will become something so much bigger than what you previously understood before when you begin to see these things and you will begin to understand why it's so great to live as a Christian and why it's so terrible to abandon these realities and to live for sin. It says that he's rich in mercy. The word there is to be for rich is to be beyond that of a normal experience. That's the idea behind rich. It's not just simply the idea of sort of like having enough money or having tons and tons of money, like rich in that sense, though that's also conveyed in there. But it's also the reality that his mercy is beyond that which is a normal experience of mercy. Begin to think like that. Begin to think like that in terms of the different kinds of mercy that exist within the world. Because there's definitions of experiences that you're going to come into contact with on so many different occasions. I'm experiencing mercy. I'm experiencing this. I'm experiencing love. And yet when it comes from God, it is beyond the normal experience of what you can experience within this life. So it's not just the idea of going around and doing good things. It's not just the idea of going around and and being nice to somebody else as much as it is to experience the richness of the mercy of God, that which is beyond normal experience. And you could begin to then recognize that in those moments of need, when you have need, and trust me, even right now, you have need. You have a need for something. When you have a true and genuine need... God is the source of that. And if you can see the amount in which his normal experience, being above and beyond the normal experience of his mercy, is in pulling you out of the spiritual grave and granting you spiritual life, the sky is limitless beyond that in what God can do for you with mercy. 
That's what he did for you. That's the reason why you came up out of the spiritual grave, why you were spiritually resurrected because of the rich mercy of God and because of this great love of God. This is love that is much, and this is love that is powerful. This is love that is greater in its extent than any other love that you've known. This is love that is more intense than any other love that you've known. And his love far exceeds other loves in both quantity as well as quality. Let me explain what I mean by that. His love extends beyond other loves in terms of quantity and that it's never going to run out. There's an endless supply and an endless duration of the love of God. It is in its entirety more of a quantity than any other love could ever actually be. There's books that are written out there of people that end up doing stupid things or going after sin because of um, this need that they all claim to have, this need to feel love. And yet when they go to these other sources of love, maybe they go to a relationship in order to feel loved, or maybe they try to do something else in order to feel loved, or whatever it is. But no matter what it is, there is always going to be a significantly less degree of love that you will receive if it is not the love that you're receiving from God. And here's the beautiful reality behind that. God loves you already in this way. If you haven't come to know Christ and you haven't truly experienced conversion, you haven't truly experienced being brought back to life, you need to know that God loves you. But God's love is so much more intense and of such a higher quality as well that He loves you with your greatest good in mind. And that may be contradictory to what you're desiring. In fact, that's the issue of being spiritually dead. You don't want to change. If you're spiritually dead, you can't change. You don't have the capacity to change, nor do you have the desire to change because you're dead. And because of your deadness, God had to step in. God with His love, God with His mercy, stepped in and revitalized you. You were Lazarus, and God called out to you. And that's how much He loved you. Not to leave you in this horrendous condition. Not to leave you in this terrible condition. And so since that is the case, since that is the definition of His love, you can trust His love and rely upon His love from this moment forward for the rest of your life, not just simply your initiation into the Gospel. It is more intense, it is of greater quality, and it is of greater quantity. God has great love and God has great Mercy, God's mercy, if we, want, if we really wanted to define God's mercy in simple ways, it would be this. God's mercy is providing for the actual needs with what's actually needed. Let me say that again. God's mercy is God providing for the actual needs with what's actually needed. So it's not things that we can conjure up within our minds of things that we would want. It's not impressions of society or the friends around us of lives that we need to be living, but it is the defined life that God has said that we should be experiencing, that we should have. He, rich in His mercy, has granted us that life. There's also a simple way that we can begin to define God's love. God's love is the effective self-giving of Himself. 
That's a little redundant. God's love is the effective self-giving of God. John 3.16. Have you ever noticed what it was saying there in John 3, in verse 16? That's one of the most often quoted. I mean, even the world, I'm sure, has that verse memorized by now. It's such a cliche verse these days, and it shouldn't be. But pay attention to what it's saying and the definition of what God's love actually is. Verse 16 of John 3, For in this way God loved the world. So here's the description, here's the definition, here is the manner in which God loves. For in this way God loved the world that He gave His only unique Son. Now you sprinkle that with a little bit more theology and you begin to recognize, well, if Jesus Christ is God, then God's display of love was to give himself to the world. In the second person of the Trinity. And since God was satisfied within himself and totally enjoying within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity past, wrap your minds around the duration of God's existence if you can and begin to think about the permanency and the totality of being satisfied within himself and because of his rich mercy and love, he then opened up the Trinity to us, his people, to bring us into right relationship and fellowship within the Godhead to begin to enjoy things that no mind could conjure up, no imagination could think of, and nobody could experience outside of the love of God. You've been brought into the Godhead. It even says in our text that you've been seated with Christ upon his throne. We see here the surpassing riches of God's grace. Now, literally, the idea of surpassing the response to reading what we're reading here, the proper response immediately to talking about the mercy of God, to talking about the love of God, to talking about the grace of God, the literal response to this is, Lord, you have outdone yourself. That's what the word surpassing means. He has outdone what the normal capacity of riches would be. These are riches that are outdoing other riches. And it's amazing. The more that you, with your face into the Scriptures, begin to examine and study these things, the more that you can begin to realize the wealth, the absolute abundant wealth that is present within Scriptures. Everything could be taken away from you. Friendships could be taken away from you. Possessions could be taken away from you. This youth group could be taken away from you. Family members could be taken away from you. Everything could be completely taken away from you. And yet you would still be experiencing the most valuable, most enjoyable riches because you have God's grace. How much time do you spend reading your Bible and then re-examine that amount of time and think to yourself, how much time do you spend enjoying the riches of God and thinking to yourself, God, you have outdone yourself. Bringing praise and worship back to God saying, you have done far exceeding to what I could have ever imagined. Bookmark that phrase. Write that down if you need to. 
that he has done far exceeding to what you could have ever imagined. He has outdone himself in giving you such wonderful goodness. You see that applied later on in Ephesians. Now God's grace, this might be kind of a mystical and magical concept to you. A lot of times you hear preachers like me just sitting there rambling on and on and on about grace and how amazing it is. You even even sing a song every once in a while. Amazing grace. That was on pitch and you know it. (laughs) You hear these songs and you, you hear these words, but it might not be exactly concrete what grace actually means. And so here's a definition that I've kind of taken and sort of modified and kind of I think maybe simplified a little bit more, a little bit easier to understand. Grace is God's unearned, love-motivated, personal involvement in your life for your best and His glory. God's grace is His unearned, love-motivated, personal involvement in your life for your best in His glory. God's grace is where He examines the entirety of your life, where He even plans out your life, the entirety from start to finish, and He begins to work, maybe in little details or in great details, but He begins to work. There's never been a moment in your life that God has not been involved in some way, shape, or form whether leading you, calling you, teaching you, or attempting to pull you out of sin. And it could be 30 years down from the road, or it could be 50 years down the road, but it is all in God's perfect timing because His grace is surpassingly rich. And so His involvement within your life is whereby He is orchestrating the events of your life and even fighting sin for you in order to bring you to a point where you can enjoy Him forever. That's what grace is. Grace is the condescension of God whereby He steps down off of His throne to come be involved in your life personally. to work it out for your good and for his glory this is absolutely essential this is why the gospel is so important because always seeing grace take you from deadness to life means you can always begin to trust and follow after god when you begin to focus more and more upon the gospel, when you begin to experience more and more of that spiritual reality that Jesus Christ died to save you from sin, bring you into a right relationship with God where His glory is most important, and you get to simply reap the benefits. That when He has pulled you out of the muck and mire of deadness and has granted you and gifted you with life, there is no telling what else you could trust Him with. You've been taken out of the worst and been given the best. This is all deserving of thanks to God. This is all deserving of worship to God. This is all deserving of commitment to God. This is all deserving of love towards God. And of course, here's the end result. Notice what it's said again there in verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good 
works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then, of course, notice verse 9, that it's not a result of works so that nobody may boast. These are things to begin to think about. The absolute destruction of pride is knowing the former life was deadness and inability and lack of desire, and God saved you from that, not on the basis of anything that you've done. Not, nothing that you did to prove to God that you were worthy to be saved. Nothing that you did to show God that you were valuable enough to be saved. There's songs that go around on the radio, and one of them in particular, I think, even, even talks about you being somebody worth dying for. It's not exactly true. You're, you were nobody worth dying for. You were somebody worth and worthy of eternal damnation. God's glory and His grace and His mercy were concepts and attributes that are worth dying for. God receiving praise and honor and lifestyles that glorify Him, that's something that was worth Christ dying for. And you being conformed to the image of Christ, whereby then you are valuable, that's something that is worth dying for. Your value should never be found. Your identity should never be found. Nothing about you should ever be found in the old you. It should all be found in the new you, which is the workmanship of God Himself. Now, even though that's all mentioned, and even though you have this wonderful privilege and this wonderful reality of being completely off the hook, that you don't have to work for your salvation, and therefore you don't have to work to keep your salvation, you're not off the hook entirely because you were saved from the former life and into a new life whereby there is such a radical and dramatic and drastic change between the old you and the new you. There should always be at least a minimal understanding of a marked change and a marked complete difference in the way that you lived your life before and the way that you live your life now. It could be that you were a legalist before, that you were trying to do all sorts of moral good, and that now that you're saved, the reality is, is that you need to keep doing moral good, but just with a different motivation. And that that's the dramatic change. And it may not be that it's entirely visible when somebody examines your actions, but there needs to be, in some capacity and in some way, shape, or form, a point of which there is a marked change where you no longer live for dead works and you begin to live for good works. You're going to be doing something. You're going to be working something. The word there in the Greek for works is where we, is where we get the word energy from. It's the Greek word ergon, energy. And this, this refers to any kind of activity, any kind of effort. It's the idea behind work. And so there's going to be work that we're going to be doing. There's going to be activity that we're going to be performing at any point in time. I mean, I mean technically right now, you're sort of doing something that is activity. Even if it's just simply trying to uh, not think about the cake that's back there and I totally ruined that for you and you're trying to as much as you can focus on the message but there's food you know there's food and food is awesome and you're hungry if you're the pastor especially right now you're hungry and you want to get through this so you can eat some food but you're trying to focus as much as you can but it's still really 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 hard you're doing some kind of an activity even if it's brain activity emotional activity there's activity that's going on and there's two classifications of activity 
There's activity that is good and there's activity that is evil. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground that exists. There's not decent activity. There's not Christian activity and then non-Christian activity and then American activity. There's not any other kind of activity, at least as far as the Scriptures are presenting. There is either good activity or there is bad activity. There is evil activity. So if you've ever wondered, like the word grace that gets thrown around, you hear some guys talking a lot about do good works. You need to do good works. There needs to be good works within your life. Here's some more understanding of what that could be. It's not just simply the idea of good versus evil, but the word for good and the word for evil in the Greek text also refer to that which is useful and that which is useless. And so here is the application. Here is the reality of how to respond and how to conclude from what you've just read, that you've been spiritually dead, you've been raised up to life, and you are the workmanship of Christ. You are the workmanship of God is to begin to examine those activities that are taking place within your life. And are they useful activities or are they useless activities? And here's a couple ways to begin to understand that. A good work is an activity of any kind that is useful to the gospel or your sanctification. Don't fall into the trap. Don't fall into the typical mindset that salvation is enough and you don't have to worry about anything else. You've made your profession of faith. You've made your walk. You've raised your hand. You've said your prayer. You're good to go. No matter how you categorize, and I'm not bashing any means, I'm just saying no matter how you categorize how you first became a Christian, stop relying upon it. Stop relying upon it. Stop pointing back to it and saying, this happened back then, therefore I'm okay now. And it doesn't matter how I'm living now. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you, did you catch that? Yes, he's talking about salvation in the book of Hebrews. Yes, salvation is essential. And yes, salvation is enough, except that if it is properly defined, that it must result in sanctification and you must go through a process as a Christian to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, though not perfectly, there still must be holiness that begins to exist. And so when you examine all of the different activity that you're doing, all of the different things that are going on within your life, and as a youth, you can clutter your life up with so many things. And they're all good things. Some of the, some of the most stale Christians are not necessarily Christians who are engaging in gross immorality but are the Christians that are engaging in useless activity, things that are not benefiting their sanctification. And I don't want to be a cosmic killjoy and make you think that I'm saying that you should take your sports, you should take your jobs, you should take your extracurricular activities and throw those completely away, though if you examine those to be stumbling blocks, you probably should. 
But what I'm saying is, is that as a regenerated, as a brought to life Christian, when you pursue activities that are not sinful, how are you pursuing those activities? Because here's another way that the idea of good works, the idea of usefulness could be understood. The works that are good are the works that God prepared beforehand. Read that again in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, these of which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. And so if good works are the works that God has prepared beforehand, that would mean that the activity that we are doing, which should be walking in these good works, are the useful works, are the types of works that make God famous, that bring Him glory. So when you pursue activities, when you pursue the things that you're doing, who is being made more famous? You or God? Because if you're being made famous, the scriptures tell us that those kinds of deeds are going to be burned up. Those are useless. It's exactly like presenting to somebody a gift or a ring that is wood, hay, or straw, and that in order for them to receive this gift, it has to be tested by fire and it burns up. That's useless. The only, the only use that that has is to keep you warm for as long as it's burnable. And then when it's burned up and it's used up, it's now completely useless to anybody. Those kinds of things which are making you famous are deeds that are burned up and are not useful. And those are ways in which you could begin to understand how to change. So yeah, it's not there is no there's no reason to begin to limit Christian activity to just simply maybe shaving our heads and putting on robes of camel hair and eating honey and living in convents all day long and being completely separated from anything that's good or fun or enjoyable or anything like that. But when you're doing these things, who becomes the focus and who becomes the emphasis in your life and in the lives of those around you? And do you pursue things for your own benefit or for making God famous? So that's my challenge. As you guys go through these weeks, as you guys begin to continue through your lives as youth and basically from now until the day that you die, examine and choose the things that you're doing. Is this something that makes God famous? Do people look at what I'm doing and they say, you know what, you're, you're a really good whatever it is, but there's something that's different about you and I don't understand what it is. And you go, yes, because you're spiritually dead. And you encourage them with that. And they say, I don't understand what it actually is. But there's something that's different about you. And you have the opportunities to verbally communicate. It's not just simply live your lives, you know, like, like that meme that goes around on Facebook every once in a while. You know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's the dumbest thing in the world. Preach the gospel with words. Say it to people. Confront people. Tell people that they're in need of Jesus. 
But also, you do need to live your life in a capacity whereby people are questioning, why is it? And people are curious. Sorry if I got a little hotted. There's a lot more spit on my iPad because of that. That's my challenge. Examine those activities. See the things that are useful. And the things that are useless, there ain't no reason for it. It's useless. It's not doing anything for you. Be selfish Christians. This is one of the things that should begin to shock you when I say be selfish in your Christianity. Be selfish when it comes to your sanctification. Be obsessed with wanting to only take in things that profit your sanctification. Be selfish in that regard. Look for things that will benefit you spiritually. Look for things that will make God famous. Look for things that will advance you forward in spiritual maturity because it's there that you find the greatest advantages in life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. God, we thank you for the opportunity that you provided for us to fellowship with each other and to experience these small groups and to begin to celebrate the coming union that you will perform with Natalie and Anthony. We thank you for the privilege to celebrate them this evening and to celebrate the covenant of your marriage. And Father, we pray that you would expose and reveal things into our lives that are useless, that are evil, and that you would be glorified by us desiring more and more of the useful things, those things that you have already prepared for us. We don't have to come up with anything to try to please you. We don't have to conjure up the best that we could ever think of and invent things in order to please you. You've already prepared what it is that we're supposed to do, and we just simply need to be obedient and faithful to you. So, Father, we pray that you would grant us grace in order to accomplish that. For your name's sake and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we do still have enough time for small groups, so you guys can enjoy some small group time.